Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. And uh, we're going to read from uh, the 17th uh, chapter of Acts. And um, as you're turning there, it's uh, appropriate, it's right, it's important for me to uh, acknowledge the fact that um, you've been very kind to me to invite me here, to give me the privilege of coming, uh, to give me access to many of you in conversation. And I will go home. Uh, My folks at home have kept in touch with me directly on every occasion that I've had opportunity to speak. Um, My uh, colleague in ministry has been in touch to assure me of not only his prayers, but the prayers of the church. And so they will be keen to know what happened, and I will be keen to let them know, uh, because in so many ways, I benefit far more than anything that I can contribute as I realize uh, how much that is going on in the world. And even as our brother this morning was talking about uh, the hospital in Nazareth, uh, the first trip I ever made to Israel was in 1983 uh, with a gentleman called Dr. Tasker. Dr. Tasker was the head of the Edinburgh Medical Missionary Society, which lies at the very heart of that uh, hospital and facility there. And it's amazing how uh, in the Christian family all these uh, Uh, little elements uh, weave wonderfully in a tapestry uh, in in the providence of God. I've enjoyed the opportunity to, as I say, meet different folks in in conversation. I'm sorry that I haven't had more opportunity. I've enjoyed the chance to uh, sing with you, and I've been looking forward to meeting Jonathan. I'm sorry that uh, I'm not able to stay for uh, Saturday night. Uh, because I would enjoy that very much. I know the work of the New Irish through my friend Keith Getty. He told me Jonathan is a really good guy. You'll like him. I don't know about that, but anyway. uh, um, But I I do want to say, Jonathan, I think your haircut this morning is fantastic. And uh, I thought it looked really shabby up until this morning. And uh, so... Uh, so that, that's, that's terrific. But I, I, I go home, God willing, in the morning from Dublin, and uh, I preach uh, at our services uh, on Sunday. Uh, there are three morning services, and we've started to stream the 9.45 service live, which means that if you, uh, if you slept in in your church service and you have confessed your sins, then you could watch at uh, about, what is that, 2.45 in the afternoon. And... Uh, I can, you'll see then if you watch on Sunday that I, that I tell the congregation uh, who you are and what you're like, and uh, then you'll be able to, you'll to see just how honest I am. <laughs> so that's enough, isn't it? Acts chapter 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Amen. Father, speak to us, Lord, we pray through your word by the Holy Spirit that beyond the voice of a mere man, uh, we may have a, through the teaching of the Bible, a living encounter with you, the God of all creation. For we pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I said yesterday that I didn't know how I could get an M into our uh, title for this morning. We've been thinking about Christ-shaped mission, and um, I, I don't, I'm not good on titles, as you can tell. They always ask for them, I never give them. And then when I arrive, and everybody knows why I never gave them, but we try to think of the manner in which Jesus uh, goes about things and his message, the time is fulfilled, and his mission to do these things. And yesterday, we thought in terms of, if you like, at least his methodology with this woman in John 4. And this morning, uh, we come finally uh, to what I'm going to refer to as Christ-shaped mission and the search for meaning, Christ-shaped mission, and the search for meaning. What we have here in Acts 17 is the record of the movements of Paul and Silas, and following their time in Thessalonica and in Berea, uh, he has been ferried some 300 miles and uh, deposited in Athens. And since Athens was not exactly uh, on his missionary program, and because he was waiting for his colleagues to come, Silas and Timothy, he has time on his hands uh, to do some sightseeing. I think it's Thoreau who says that when you travel, it's not so much that you see things as in traveling, you change the way in which you see things. And I think there's some measure of truth in that because when we move around and look at things, it really is our view of the world that informs our response to what we see. So, for example, if you go to some of the great historical sites of the Reformation, as I've done in this last month, um, <clears throat> one of the things that is overwhelmingly obvious is that all flesh is like grass and the glory of man like the flower of the field. 
and the grass withers and the flower falls, and uh, it is the word of the Lord that endures forever. So instead of feeling somehow embedded to a shrine or committed to something that is buried in the past, we realize that God is the God of history and overrules all these things. So as he waits for his friends, he has a chance to look around. And Luke does not tell us uh, whether he was delighted by the architecture, but he does tell us that he was distressed by the idolatry. And you will notice that his reaction is recorded for us very straightforwardly in verse 16. His spirit was provoked within him. It was provoked within him. It caused something inside of him. He wasn't able, if you like, um, to, in contemporary terms, just to take pictures of it or, or videos of it and, and post it on Facebook and tell his friends, look where I've been or look where I am. No, it was far more profound than that because he realized what was represented in these things. And, it, and I might just say in passing that it is our understanding of the world that informs the way in which we view culture, the way in which we read our newspapers, the way in which we read the articles, the, uh, the, the, the leading articles in, in the newspapers of our day. Uh, we have a profoundly different take on what is described in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord and King. So he's moved by the sight of all of these shrines. He's in the cultural capital of the world. Athens was where Plato and Socrates uh, were from. It was the adopted home of Aristotle. It was aesthetically magnificent. It was philosophically sophisticated. It was morally decadent, and it was spiritually deceived. And it was the fact of this spiritual deception about which Paul knew a great deal when he writes to the Ephesians. He is explaining that in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know God. That God actually purposed that it would not be through human wisdom that an understanding of himself would come. That is not to say that the wisdom of man is irrelevant. It is clearly not. But it is to acknowledge that in the divide between ourselves and the living God, it is impossible for a man or a woman, by way of human intellect, to penetrate that barrier. And the way in which God has determined that it would be done is by means of his revelation that he would cross the divide, that he would step into time, that he would make himself known, just as he made himself known to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And so he is, in, in light of this, approaching all that then unfolds. He was well aware of the prophets of the reminder of the prophets when they said, how silly is it that somebody would go and chop down a tree trunk and drag it home to his house, and one end of it he would burn in the fire, and the other end of it he would make into a god, thus causing his wife to say to him, how do you know which end is which? Well, it won't really matter because it is futility in its expression, and that is what Paul is pointing out. Now, it is one thing for him to react in that way, but what is, if you like, his counteraction? If his reaction is to be distressed, provoked within himself, what is his counteraction? Now, this is very, very important because we live in an environment 
where uh, there is much that is so clearly an expression of the fact that men and women are without God and without hope in the world. But notice that he does not immediately uh, curse the darkness. He doesn't immediately uh, get himself a little platform and stand up and bemoan everything that is going on, point out everything that is, that is uh, counter to the plan and purpose of God. Nor does he run away, nor does he hide for the hills, nor, nor, nor does he gather a little group of, around him in, in a kind of form of incipient monasticism. No. Instead, he sees this as an opportunity. It is an opportunity that involves him, first of all, going to the place that is most obvious to him. He goes in verse 17, first of all, to reason in the synagogue, to reason in the synagogue. Let me go, he says, to the people who are here, who are the fearers of God, who are the worshipers of God, who know that God has brought them out of the land of Egypt and provided for them along the way, these individuals to whom I may go in order to encourage them in the context in which they find themselves. Surely that is one of the benefits of coming from the outside of somewhere into an alien environment and seeing it again in such a way that those who live there all of their lives may not actually see it. And part of the privilege then is being able to point that out. Now, presumably in the synagogue, he would have followed the pattern which was his pattern. If your Bible is open at 17, if you look at verse 2, when he's in Thessalonica, it says, and Paul went in, as was his custom, there's our phrase again, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So, in other words, he didn't ask them to take their brains out and put them under the seat. He didn't immediately try to woo them emotionally. No, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, doing what? Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead. So that's what he was doing. He was doing Bible exposition. He was doing what Jesus did in Luke chapter 24. He was explaining to them all the things in the Scriptures concerning Jesus. Let me show you here, he says, probably going to Isaiah 53, going to Psalm 22, whatever the Old Testament passage might be. And he would say, it is, it is absolutely foundational to the unfolding drama of God's purposes that the Messiah of God would suffer and die. And when he brought them to that point, he would then say, and this Jesus is that Messiah. This Jesus is that Messiah. First of all, making clear what the unfolding story of the Old Testament was declaring and then pointing them to Jesus himself. He goes from there, not only in the synagogue, but out, we're told, into the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. I just love that little phrase, with those who happened to be there. Who, who's there? I don't know. Whoever's there, I'll talk to them if I have the opportunity. And it is in that context that he is then able to advance the ball from the religious environment through the business environment to the academic environment. Because you will notice from the text that uh, the buzz began to go around because of what he was saying. And some of these eggheads in verse 18 uh, were intrigued by this. Uh, they called him the babbler. The word in Greek actually means a bird picker. 
uh, like a, a bird that flits around and picks up little bits and pieces here, there, and everywhere. And what they were saying is, I, I really don't know what he's on about. He seems to have picked up bits and pieces all over the place. He, he, he doesn't really amount to very much, but he's certainly causing, causing quite a stir. And apparently, he's, he's got something going with foreign uh, divinities, because he was proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection, Jesus and Anastasia. Uh, so they said, well, it must be a kind of male-female deity thing that he has. Why don't we have him up to one of our meetings? We can make mincemeat of him up there. We'll bring him in and let him do his thing. And so that's exactly what happened. Verse 19, Luke, again, with his eye for detail, says, they took hold of him. They took hold of him. <laughs> well, in other words, I'm not sure they gave him an option. Uh, they said, you're coming, you're coming with us. You're coming with us. Because we would like uh, to find out what this new teaching is that you're presenting. It's a lot like Jesus, isn't it? Remember the, the religious people and the people who were listening to him? says he, 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 he speaks these things that we've never heard before, and he does so with such authority. And so you're bringing some strange ideas or some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Christ-shaped mission and the search for meaning. All right? We want to know what this means. Now, whenever an individual is beginning to think that way, at least the door is cracking open. Whatever point from, which, from whatever point they begin their search, nevertheless, it is God who, who, who fashions these things in the minds of men and women. And so uh, they are described as a group of people that you might find in the average coffee shop or Starbucks in Bangor. Now all the Athenians, all the people from Bangor and the foreigners who live there spend their time doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's very unkind. But uh, I don't mean that everybody does that. But it is quite fascinating, is it, that Charles Schultz, who invented Starbucks, was not concerned about selling coffee. What he said was he wanted to restore the street corners to America. So in other words, he wanted to create a context in which people could actually sit down and engage with one another and have conversation. Therefore, there is great, there is great opportunity in, in a place like that, as there is in the waiting room of a hospital, as there is on a bus. They're all there. They're all real people. They're all putting on their socks. They all have deep-seated needs. They're all wondering. They're all wandering. Paul looks at it, doesn't decide, well, that was nice to see all that stuff, now I must get on. No, it causes him to reason, to think, to probe, and now to respond to this invitation. Now, you will notice that these characters are identified at least in part. Uh, they were uh, a variety of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. At the risk of oversimplification, and uh, I realize I'm in the north of Ireland, where it's a highly educated group, uh, but uh, you can point out to me the missing links in this by email later on. But the Epicureans, essentially, if we want to summarize it, considered the gods, small g, to be so remote, um, so removed from everything, as to take no interest in and play no part in human affairs. For the Epicurean, the world was due to chance. It was, if you like, a random concourse of atoms. Men and women were essentially a collection of molecules 
held in suspension. For the Epicurean, there would be no survival of death, and there would be no judgment. Therefore, they decided the best we can do is pursue pleasure at 120 kilometers an hour. And that way we can have the life that we have dreamed of, and hopefully, hopefully it will be a life free from both pain and fear. Now, the Stoics on the other side acknowledged God in a kind of pantheistic way, in much the same way that people who acknowledge the presence of a force, the kind of nonsense that you get on the, the, when the weather forecast comes around and uh, says, uh, and now let's see what Mother Nature has for us today. That is simply a, a form of pantheistic thinking. Michael Fish never did that. I mean, he may have got it wrong, but I don't remember him ever saying that. Uh, these people ought to be removed for saying that. Anyway, that's by the way, we don't need to talk about the weather forecast. The world for the Stoic was determined by fate. Human beings had to, had to simply pursue duty. They had to resign themselves to live in harmony with nature and to develop their own sense of reason and their own sense of self-sufficiency. Uh, next week, I hope to go, before I go to do some proper singing, uh, the following week in Nashville, I'll be next week in New Orleans in order to attend a concert by Paul Simon, who is now 76 years old. And those of you who have followed his career know that he has had a fair amount of Epicurean in him and a significant amount of Stoic. A winter's day in a deep and dark December, I am alone. Remember? And a rock can feel no pain, and an island never cries. I am a rock. I am an island. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I'm a rock. He's now a 76-year-old crumbling rock, still pushing the frontiers, still writing the lyrics, still in search of an answer. He's the one who wrote, up a narrow flight of stairs to a narrow little room as I lie upon my bed in the early evening gloom and impaled upon my wall, my eyes can dimly see the riddle of my life and the puzzle that is me. So I'll continue to continue to pretend that my life will never end and that flowers never bend with the rainfall. You've got it right there. Uh, well, I'm going to start and quote all these lyrics to you. You get annoyed with it, and, and so you should. But what you really have in the encounter are, if you like, in the expressions of these philosophers, you have pre-Christian pre attempts to come to terms with life, trying to make sense of the riddle of life, trying to say, why do I actually exist? Gauguin, the post-impressionist the post French painter, whose work is displayed all over the place, not least of all in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, in his biggest canvas, he wrote on it. He didn't write on his canvases, but he did write on this one. It's a, it's a, it's a panorama of life from birth to death. And up in one of the corners, he wrote, Du venons nous. Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? Now, my dear friends, 
whether this is in Asia, whether this is in Africa, whether this is in Bangor or in Bangladesh, the heart of man, qua man, is as the Bible says, created by the living God for a relationship with himself. Man by nature is mutinous, rebellious, lost, guilty, and accountable, and walks through her days, his days, in search of significance. And Paul realizes, here we go, what an opportunity. And in the shadow of the Acropolis and of the Pantheon, a converted Jew addresses the intelligentsia of Athens. Dum, da, dum, dum, dum. It's fantastic, isn't it? A real man in a real place, in a real moment in time, with a divine appointment and a clear message concerning Jesus and the resurrection. Now, what he then does, and I suggest this to you again. I noticed some of your eyes were sort of squinting at me when I said, I think that what we have here is probably a summary when I said that earlier in the week. And I think what we have here is probably a summary again, because I read this in about three and a half minutes. So I, I, I've got every suspicion that, that this is not the totality of what Paul was saying. I might add to that that uh, those of you who subscribe to The View, that uh, what Paul did in Acts 17 was a bit of a failure, and that's why he changed to his approach in 1 Corinthians. Uh, you know, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He kind of fixed it up. I don't think so for a moment. You may be right, but I don't believe so. Because the only way he could get to the resurrection, eventually as he did, was through the life and the death of Jesus. It's impossible to imagine that he just uh, simply decided to go there. And so what we have is his straightforward summary. And what I'd like to do is essentially just give us a summary of the summary. What does he then say to these people? Well, in verse 24, he says, well, after his very gracious introduction, you're a religious group and so on, and you've got various altars, and you've even covered your bases with one to the unknown God. So he uses that as a launching pad. This is like Jesus, isn't it? May I have a drink of water? Let's talk about living water. I see you've got an idol to the unknown God. I know who this is. I'd like to tell you about him. Well, that'll get people's ears going, won't it? Of course it will. The God who made the world and everything in it. There you have it. Starts with Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. That's where we start. Not in the beginning, nothing. Not in the beginning, something. Not in the beginning, maybe. The God who made the world and everything in it cannot be contained in a shrine. He doesn't live in temples made by hands. This same God, verse 25, does not depend on us. We depend on him. Not only did God create life, but he is the one who sustains life. If you know the catechism, you know that the catechism answers this so wonderfully helpfully for us. It's been modernized in, in my own uh, uh, memory, but nevertheless, you, you remember it. What is God? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, in his goodness and glory, in his wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. 
That is Christian testimony. That is Christian orthodoxy. So when people say to us, well, I want to talk about kind of an unknown being. I want to talk about a cosmic force. I want to think about these things. We say, well, that's good. Let's think about them. But what is it that the Bible tells us? How does it introduce us to God? It doesn't introduce us to a God that can be found inside of ourselves. It introduces us to a, to a God who is entirely outside of ourselves. We, we don't substitute gods may be manipulated to our own ends. But this God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, is not malleable in that way. In verse uh, 26, reinforcing this, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. What a statement. Do you believe this? Do you believe the doctrine of creation? Do you know why I believe it? Not because I understand it. Not because I can figure it all out. Because Jesus believed it. And I believe Jesus. And I have no freedom to believe anything other than Jesus taught. So I'm going with Jesus on this one. And so should you. That's what he's saying. He made from one man every nation of mankind, all the nations of mankind, to live on the face of the earth. And notice what he says. He's in charge of history and in charge of geography. He's in charge of history and geography. History is not, is not uh, is cyclical, ultimately. History is linear. It's moving from a beginning to an ending. Remember the, uh, Noel, uh, what do you call that guy, uh, Harrison? Uh, Noel Harrison, I think it was. That's the son of the guy uh, in My Fair Lady. And you remember, he had, he, I think he's a one-hit wonder. Run. Like a circle in a spiral. Like a wheel within a wheel. Never ending or beginning in a spinning reel. Like a snowball down a mountain or a carnival balloon. Like a diddle doodle deedle that doodle deedle Absolute garbage. Complete nonsense. A number one hit. And people are going, that is, that is so cool. That is amazing. It just, just makes me feel, you know. Makes you feel what? It ought to make you feel stupid. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Let me tell you what the Bible says. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes judgment. That's a dead end. There's a final exit from the freeway. When you're on your way to Dublin, it eventually says, get off here. And every one of us has an exit towards which we are inexorably moving. And that is why Paul is saying what he's saying. And that is why we must say what we say. Kindly, graciously, winsomely, effectively, imaginatively. But say it. Say it. The Christian church in Britain is backed into a, into a narrow corner on our back foot unprepared to be bold enough to step out and challenge the thought forms of a world that is chaotic, that is entirely upside down, both morally, spiritually, and in so many other ways. What's changed? Whether it's Athens or Aberdeen, the heart of man. Hence, the Word of God. God has acted, he says in verse 27, in such a way that human beings made in his own image would actually seek him and reach out for him and find him. That's why anthropologists have discovered that no matter where they go in the world, they find people worshiping. What are they worshiping? Why do they worship? 
Because Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has set eternity in their hearts. They know that there is something beyond themselves. So therefore, they've got to fill that up with something. Now, why is it that they haven't sought him, reached out for him, and finally found him? Well, the answer to that is in Romans chapter 1. Because, because of sin. Because behind a facade of wisdom, they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God that Paul is describing here for things that creep and crawl and fly. So sin is the great barrier. That sin has settled in every dimension of our humanity, not least of all in terms of our minds, and therefore in terms of our intellect. Paul is not arguing with these fellows on the strength of an intellectual exercise. He's laying before them the truth of God. He is not far from each one of us. We are the ones who are far away from Him. If it weren't for our sin which separates us from Him, He would be readily accessible to us. Because after all, he says, quoting your own poets, in Him we live and move and have our being. And he says, verse 26, He is the Father. He is the Father of all men. He's the Father of all men. Well, what does he mean by that? He doesn't mean, he's not talking in terms of a redemptive relationship, which men and women enjoy in and through Christ. He's simply pointing out that humanity derives its life from God, one person at a time. And therefore, it is ludicrous to think of the Creator in terms of created, lifeless objects. And so, he's pointing out that there is actually no place for idolatry, because there's no object of art created by the imagination of man that can be anything other than less than God. How can finite man handle infinity? What, what would we use as the adjudicating principle? No. That's why the Bible always calls us to bow down. And He is, you will notice, the judge of the world. He's the judge of the world. Some of you have been telling me about going to CSSM camp. I never went to CSSM camp, but I did use the CSSM chorus book at Crusaders. And one of the songs we sang lustily in the south side of Glasgow was, He did not come to judge the world. He did not come to blame. He did not only come to seek, it was to save He came. And when we call Him Savior, then we call Him by His name. Well, that is true, but notice what He's saying. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. In other words, He overlooked them in view of the perfect revelation of Himself that was going to be given in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But their ignorance before was culpable, and our ignorance now is far less excusable in light of the revelation that we have in Jesus. Now, it is at that point, having made these things straightforwardly clear, that he then advances upon them. And he says, now, I need to let you know that God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. And this, I think, my friends, is where 
we are tempted to really stumble. I mean, understandably stumble. This is where hymn writers, again, help us immensely. If we find it difficult necessarily to say, then why don't we just sing it? If you have the big blue book, the praise book, the big blue praise book, go home and read hymn number 962. And here's the closing stanza. But sinners, filled with guilty fear, shall see his wrath prevailing. For they shall rise and find their tears are wholly unavailing. The day of grace is past and gone. They, trembling, stand before the throne, all unprepared to meet him. We can't have it both ways. You can't be a particularist, God-fearing, Christ-exalting believer on the one hand, and a universalist at your auntie's funeral. That is why we are called to be missionaries in the world. Because the narrow, sunlit strip between time and eternity is actually very tiny. And he says, if you're wondering about this, the key to really grasping it, he says, is the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. That Jesus is risen from the dead. Well, of course, this was what had just wrought the world of Saul of Tarsus, a religious fellow and a good background, intelligent, good schools, committed to the destruction of the followers of Jesus until he met Jesus. How could he meet Jesus if Jesus was buried in a Galilean, in a, in a Palestinian tomb? If redemption history came to, came to a crashing halt there? But it didn't. If we had another week, we could go on and think about the way in which the, 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 the reality of the resurrection and the fact of the ascension completely impacted and transformed the community that was there in, in post-Pentecost and sent them out into the world with an, with an unblushing and unashamed commitment to say to everybody, you know, Jesus is alive. You can come and meet him. There used to be a group called in the 60s in, in England called the Glorylanders. And, uh, and, and, and he, I remember they sang a song called, I have, I have met the master, won't you come and meet him too? I, I did a, a mission in London some years ago now, and we went out on the streets, and, and our opening gambit for people was, excuse me, do you have a moment to hear about a bad man that went to heaven? And every so often people say, well, I'd like to hear about that. Because inherently the notion is, good people go to heaven. But all the people that are in heaven are bad people, made new, clothed with the goodness of Jesus. Right? Now that's what he's saying. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some said, I never heard anything so stupid in all of my life. Stephen Hawking is not a new phenomenon. Neither is that other guy from Cambridge. Very clever fellow, obviously. He hates everything. We've seen the stuff in the Times this week about the books he's doing for children. Don't you kid yourself. This is an agenda from deep, deep darkness. Explain it to children under the age of 10. 
why it is that atheism is the only sensible option and why Christianity is, is foisted upon you by a bunch of really weird people who are dangerous and should be set aside. This is right here in, in, in our own nation. Well, what are we going to do? Just bemoan it? Run away and hide from it? Or are we going to step up to it? We're going to say, no, you can mock me. That's fine. Others said, maybe you could come again next week. Okay, that's fine. But you'll notice there's no scrambling and jambling on the part of Paul. I, in fact, verse 33 is quite amazing to me. Here it is. So Paul went out from their midst. That's it. So Paul went out from their midst. He didn't, say, he didn't get Jonathan Ray up here to play just as I am 47 times in order to try and seduce the people into making a response to Jesus. No. He said, here's the deal. I told you the truth. You have heard the truth. You're responsible for the truth. Excuse me. I have to leave. And he left. And some men joined him, believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Well, that's at least a start. As I feel like my art teacher used to say to me, I used to say, Mr. Um, Tom, same, same name as my English teacher. It's a senior moment. But anyway, uh, Miss Tom Walker, Tommy Walker. I used to say, can you help me with this? I can't do it. He used to say, in his Yorkshire accent, listen, Beg, you do this all the time. I'll get you started, but I'm not going to do it for you. Essentially, that's my task. Now, I've got you started, but I'm not going to do it for you. Are you reading your Bible? You're reading a Bible with somebody who doesn't know the Bible? Are you purposefully engaging in the opportunities for evangelism that are present in Coleraine, in Bangor, in Port Stewart, in Achidui, and all other places with strange names? Because it really would be quite ridiculous, wouldn't it, to come in here and spend a week thinking about trying to reach Nazareth if we haven't even made a stab at trying to reach Newry. You say, well, don't finish on a bad note, Alistair. You were doing well there for a minute. You try and be nice just as you finish. Can't do it. I'm not that nice. That's what my wife told me. Father, thank you. Thank you that the same transforming power of grace that turned this little Jewish man the right way up is the same grace that comes to us. Thank you that it is the same story that he proclaimed that we have to proclaim, that it is the same risen Lord Jesus who is present in contemporary Western culture and indeed throughout the world. And we renew our commitment to the fact that, as Habakkuk says, one day the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And it won't happen automatically because you have ordained that the means whereby others will come to know and understand and believe this truth is by the opening up of your word, the Bible, and the setting forward of your son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you put your treasure in old clay pots so that the transcendent power might be seen to belong to God and not to us. 
Help us, Lord, in the balance of this day and in the evening hour and in the celebration of tomorrow that our hearts may be filled once again with a sense of wonder at your goodness and praise for who and all you are. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.